0: Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, at BuiltByScott and Instagram at KingOpain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. I want to take a moment to really shout out and say thank you to our Most important sponsor, MatrixFitness.com. Greg Lawler agreed numerous years ago now to support this podcast and to make it what it is today. And he is representative of a corporate culture at Matrix Fitness that is really all about serving the customer and making sure you get what it is you need to do the things you need to do. Whether that's serving uh, an entire organization or team or a single individual, building a performance facility, uh, taking care of yourself and your own home fitness needs, MatrixFitness.com does it all. And they are a global company, worldwide You can get any solution you need for your um, product needs, as well as consulting on building your own facility or a facility for your organization. So I can't recommend them enough. I appreciate everything they've done for Leave Your Mark. And I want this community to support of what is our greatest sponsor, MatrixFitness.com. Head over to their site today and see what it is that they have and how they might be able to solve any problem you might have. Those of you who are long-time listeners might have recognized that I started the Leave Your Life Lab not too long ago. We're now almost three months into our program, doing some really great work with some great people in the industry. This is really, if you're in the human performance industry and you're looking for support, uh, counsel, mentorship, and direction in your career and life and living the best life possible, Uh, avoiding burnout and enjoying the work that you do that this lab is uh, designed for you Uh, i am doing my best to steward a great group of people and if you want to know more about the program we will be opening another cohort in the not too distant future so head over to Lymlab.com today. Check out the podcast. You can get your latest episodes of the Leave Your Mark podcast there. You can get a free download source for a couple of the videos uh, that I've done on just getting started in this process. and Take a look on the uh, Life Lab page at what we get into in our program and how it's all set up. Would love to have uh, new people involved. Uh, the people who are in it are really loving it. I'm loving the work too and the connection. So keep an eye out for it. Check out what we're doing. Check out the latest podcasts. And of course, if you want an LYM cap, that's something you can get on the page as well. So head over there, get yourself an LYM cap and uh, support the podcast. And at the very least, do me a favor and uh, you know, rate it, share it, uh, connect and even leave a comment on your favorite streaming source. Take care. My biggest sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is also a company near and dear to my heart. This is something I believe in, my wife Jamie believes in, we believe in our mission, which is to really change the culture and, and the way we do human performance, bringing the worlds of therapy and performance together into one critically successful process that uh, really transcends uh, the narratives of both areas or, and cultures and brings them together in one operating system and one common language of practice. And the other thing that it does is it's underpinned by applied neurology and the whole neurological system is what runs our body. And we've spent some time this last two years really bringing in some of the most Important and latest concepts in applied neurology to the programming so that we really put the head back on uh, the body in terms of training. And so the things we're doing are just so powerful right now, and people are talking about it. uh, You know, people who are doing the programming are just recognizing how it's changing their practice. And we're hoping that more of you will join us, will join the reconditioning revolution. We now have our R1 foundations and R2 designs completely online. You can uh, digest all the information at your leisure, and then we have eight-week labs once a week for an hour uh, over an eight-week period. We rotate through these throughout the year. So our next R1 foundations is this September. We are starting an R2 designs very soon. We would love to have people involved with what we're doing. And we also are doing special live event sessions. Uh, We have an R1 Foundations live event that is going to be kicking up in September as well. We also have our R3 collab, which is a special live event where we bring together everything we do in R1 and R2, along with more applied neurology around how the cerebellum cortex and brainstem affect movement and function. And so all of that comes together in an outstanding course, and we have one this September 24-25 in Montreal. would love to have people there if you've gone through our program R1 and R2 want to get more and more people doing this because it's changing the way people support uh, athletic and human performance in general. So would love to help you be the best practitioner possible. If you're interested, head over to reconditioninghq.com today and check out what we're doing and check out our next offerings. Take care. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast. Welcome, Matt, to the Reconditioning Revolution Mastermind Community. Thanks for taking the day today for an hour to chat with us. I know you got some things you're juggling at home. Very much appreciate your time, sir. Um, for those listening, Matt Price is a very accomplished strength conditioning uh practitioner. Um Takes care of, uh, leads the performance uh, um, department for the Los Angeles Kings um, and lives down in L.A. now. uh, And prior to that was the leads of strength conditioning for Alpine Canada with the men's team. And then prior to that, the women's team and then had an illustrious career of his own in hockey. um, More in the penalty in the penalty box, I think, (laughs) than on on the ice. But we'll we'll go. We'll set that aside for now. (laughs) Welcome, Maddie. Thanks for coming thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. So, I wanted to really tap in for the the group uh who listens today and the group that joins us later and in, in taking on this as a recording in your experience with um so many really um valuable return to performance uh projects over time whether that was in skiing or now in hockey and some of the things that you've taken away and learned from that and I want to explore it in a couple different ways um both the human element and the technical element and so you know our community as you know with reconditioning it's a it's a splendid um concept where we're bringing therapy and performance together in in sort of one language and being that you you have worn the hat of the strength conditioning practitioner for your career i wanted to get your your first thoughts on what have been some of the challenges you found in working with your brethren across the aisle in therapy and and how have you brokered those in some sense and what have you learned from those challenges maybe that you now take to in a different way to the work that you do and i'll i'll pick that apart as we go along through your answer but i wanted to start there
1: yeah um maybe i'll, I'll step back to your your uh your joke about me spending a lot of time in the penalty box as a player and and i probably spent more time in the in the treatment room and on the therapy table than I did the penalty box. So as a as an athlete up until and I stopped playing when I was 25, I was always injured. And this is, you know, mid 90s, um, a kind of a different time. There weren't strength coaches and and treatment at the time. And and you would probably remember Scotty was really sort of patch it up and and figure out a way to just to get the athlete back playing. And and it wasn't like um, a knock on the on the therapist at the time. It just is the way it was. And I think now coming full circle and experiencing um, when, when one of our athletes is injured, you have a, a, a certainly a different appreciation for, for the um, importance of the collaboration of, of all the people involved and certainly um, a, a different type of empathy for what the athlete's likely going through. And, and certainly, I think another part of that is being very cognizant of how the professionals working on the return to play are... Working together because the athletes watching and the athletes sort of observing this, and I think um, the confidence they take away from this is is uh, really affected by how professional the professionals are. Um, so yeah, I think um, now going back across, uh, I guess getting close to two decades with Alpine Canada and my time here in L.A., um, I think it's it's still a very evolving. Um, dynamic between the two groups. And I think it's certainly moving in the right direction. Um, I think those working relationships depend a lot on who the people are and maybe what their skill sets are, what their experience is, what their ego is. So there's, there is, there is a real sort of turf element um, for better or worse. Um, And I think it's really important that the people that are involved understand what's what's at stake. Who's who's really at the center of this project? Um, and I and I'll I'll sort of butcher Jeremy uh, Shepherd's quote, but it's it's not it's not about your mission. It's about our our. Uh, it's not about your vision. It's about our mission. Um, so there, I butchered it uh, extremely well. Um, but yeah, just, there's certainly times where there's, there's a turf war involved and there's times where things just really flow and become ultra collaborative and just, just seem to really happen at a a very, um, efficient pace. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of an experience I've had it all from, from both ends of that spectrum. Um, but yeah, no, there's there's uh, there's a lot still still that we have to learn and that we have to grow uh, from, and and I think, but I do think it's going in a good direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I kind of realized a little while ago, and I've I've sort of presented it a couple of times in different presentations but I think it's the narrative um and it's an honest narrative that the therapists have versus the performance professional the, the the narrative of the therapist is to uh to help performance through protection like they want to protect the athlete and make sure they're safe and healthy and the performance professional wants to do it through you know overreaching this sense of you know taking yourself to another level and being able to successfully you know improve so to speak so they come come from the problem from two different perspectives in essence and it's kind of recognition of the other's perspective in the process that gives you uh, a better understanding of what maybe the way they're kind of going after things and I was wondering what a do you kind of agree with that and if not do you have a different perspective and then b how have you call it in your older wisdom now after many years, kind of put yourself in their shoes and allowed yourself to, in essence, kind of be a better partner in the process.
1: Yeah, I know I think your first points um, something that I, I connect with and and uh, acknowledge at a, at a big level. So my my analogy on that was um, that the performance or strength person is sort of the gas and the therapist is sort of the brake. And I, I, I first thought of that working with, um, a guy named Rich Rottenberg, who's a, an excellent PT, who who's responsible for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we had an athlete from LA that he worked with prior to his time in Toronto. And, and we had this dynamic back and forth and we worked really well together, but it was, I was the gas and he was the brake. And I, and I kind of thinking, as you, you said that, you know, if we got into the car and we were trying to get from point A to point B through through city traffic. I don't think you could get there safely with only brake or only gas. And there's going to be a time where the accelerator is really important, and there's going to be a time where the brakes really important. And there's this give and take between those those two elements that get you there safely and get you there efficiently. Um, so um, I think that that relationship is exactly. Uh, what you said is something I, I certainly agree with um, how have I adapted I think I think when it's a really good working relationship when two people are on the same page and there's really no confusion around what we're trying to do and where each person fits in um, you just kind of do your thing it, it is easy um, when when a situation arises where Uh, maybe the two or three or four people. Now there's many people involved in these processes. It's just not two parts. But when an element uh, exists that may have a more um, assertive opinion on on what should be happening and how it should be happening or when it should be happening, um, I've personally chosen to defer a little bit. um, And... You know, so I'm a strength and conditioning uh, background, so I'm on the performance side of the fence. I do defer to the medical side. I think that's the appropriate um, pathway, the the appropriate decision. Um, and in very difficult situations, and I've I've dealt with them in 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 the past. Uh, my I steal from uh, Bruce Lee is be water. My friend, we use, you know, we we work around, we work around the other side, we work over, we work under, but we don't try to go through. Um, It's, it is, uh, it continues moving forward. You just, you don't always have to meet it head on and and battle over something. Um, Of course, unless it was an extreme uh, uh, situation that really needed some some serious debate, but um I've I've sort of taken that approach when uh when two people aren't necessarily on the exact wavelength is to defer to the medical person and then try to find ways to to resolve a, a conflict, resolve disagreement, or to see their perspective or to appreciate where they're coming from. I mean, we all have bosses too, especially in, in the pro setting, we have a boss to answer to. And uh, if I come running head on into a, into a situation and create, uh, you know, um, a, a poop storm um, and the, the medical person has to answer for it, that's not going to help anyone. So, mm-hmm. like I said, my, my lesson and my sort of um, method in, in these situations is to defer to the medical side and then try to work with them and, and extend our, our, uh, our relationship <laughs>
0: Awesome.
2: Well, I was just going to actually yeah, go follow along on that because I loved your analogy of that car with the brake and the and the pedal because, like you said, you need both of those things to have an appropriate journey and to be able to arrive at your destination. Um, the question becomes is who gets to be the one that decides when those get lifted and pressed, right? Because the, ch- the challenge is not necessarily that everybody always needs to collaborate re- collaboratively work together, but that there needs to be somebody oversighting that what's the vision or the decision that's going to be made at those times. So how how have you worked those ideas out? I know you said you defer sometimes, but who really heads the files in a way? Is there a specific way that it's done or?
1: Well, I guess I'd go back to if there's only two parties or if there's only two sides to this. Yes. I, I would say that the medical person, likely should have the, the lion's share of the say, or should should get maybe the, the veto vote in some things. Um, I think having someone with oversight is huge. It exists obviously in certain private settings, in certain pro settings, there is someone who's managing the project quote unquote. Um, and I think those are the very uh, more progressive groups. Those are probably the more effective groups. Um, and I think that's a that's the next step for for most of the pro teams as they add that layer. Um, one thing that I've learned from my experience is if we don't have oversight, one thing that's been really effective is to help uh, map out that end stage return to play. So, you know, I've spoken on in the past with the on ice stuff, and so I'll I'll lay out. Um, you know, here's here's block A, B, C. Here's what leads us to a potential return to practice and kind of have all these things laid out with targets, with days off. Um, here's some, some metrics off the ice that we definitely want to check the box on. And then make it a suggestion to the medical staff. Here, here's what I think. What do you think about it? Do you think this is a good idea? Do you think it's too aggressive? Do you want to do you want to push it a little um, more aggressively? Do you think it's like, what do you think? And, um, you know, just to come at it from a, a more collaborative language, I think is really important. And, and when the map is there, um, assuming it's a good map or a reasonable map, I think it's hard to ignore. Um, it doesn't need to be set in stone, but at least it sets us off in a path um, and, and it gives us a tool to sort of guide, guide our directions. Um, but otherwise, if you're day-to-day reacting to the athlete or every morning trying to uh, impress upon the, the athlete or the situation what your your plan is without working with the other professionals, then it just becomes obviously very chaotic, inefficient, and, um, and, and plenty of conflict arises between staff. And like I said earlier, then the athlete sees that. You know, it's really hard to hide that um from the athlete and and there's the go-between. It's kind of like the good cop, bad cop, and well they want to do this and I want to do that. And they said I couldn't skate and you said I should skate. So that plan really sort of clarifies everything. We can explain to the athlete and communicate that, hey, here, here's your schedule. You're going to be one day on, one day off, two days on, one day off. We can build this up. So here's what you're going to expect. There's going to be no negotiation on this in the initial week. After that, here's the plan. Here's how it progresses. Here's where we're trying to get you to. And I think it removes the 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 um, Ambigu- you know the, the ambiguity and it removes that, that uh, opportunity for the even for the athlete to play us against each other, and so it really, it really sets the table for us all to be on the same page. And um, again, it I think it just it just takes some of the the, the friction and and uh, potential for conflict out of that out of that um, out of that sort of project between the the, the teammates.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. I just want to let everybody know some people come on a little bit later here. Um, Obviously, we're talking about to matt price from the los angeles kings who is takes care of all their and runs their performance department uh, and and has been for a while now and prior to that I was with uh, alpine canada for n- numerous years great great experience in in a lot of different spaces with elite athletes um, and please if you have any questions feel free to put them in the chat we're happy to an- ask them for you or, or you can put your hand up and ask a question if you want to as well mm-hmm. one one last sort of i would call it relation question matt is you know when you've experienced really good quality uh, interaction with a professional and sort of the handoff of the baton of things what have been so many of the people uh, on our call today even biased towards maybe being a little bit more therapy than strength conditioning so what what have been the call it character traits or the approaches or the strategies that they've applied that you have appreciated in your role that has made your job easier. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. Okay. I'm going to keep this one simple. I mean, if you're looking for equipment to, fill your facility that's brand new and you want to deck it out with the best in the business, or you need somebody to help you decide what to put in your facility and organize it, structure it, or you just want to build a home gym or a home facility, or you need a specific piece of equipment to to serve a specific uh, purpose in your human performance system. Matrix Fitness com has an answer for you. And the people there are into making sure that you get what you need, that you are served, and that effectively your problem is solved. So it's easy. If you've got a problem or an issue or something you need to get Then uh, it comes to serving the human performance needs of your clients or yourself, head over to MatrixFitness.com today and check out what they have. You won't be disappointed. If you're looking for a roadmap of how to bring the skills, techniques, approaches, concepts of therapeutic practice together with the methodological systems, principles, and exercise strategies of performance practice... Neuro-reconditioning is the way to go. Neuro-reconditioning brings together all of these things under the umbrella of the governing system of the body, the neurological system, and makes sure you understand where to tactically and technically bring all of those systems and practices together in the most powerful way. Reconditioning is the only system we know of that brings all these things together under a neurological uh, profile. And we believe that this is the next wave in human performance. So if you want to up your game and be the best in the business at what you do and really take care of your clients to the best of your ability, then get involved in the reconditioninghq.com revolution today, head over to reconditioninghq.com. Check out the courses that we're delivering. You can do R1 foundations and R2 designs all online. There are live uh, lab sessions that we're building uh, on a regular basis as well. There really is an opportunity for any way you want to learn out there. Uh, and you can learn at your pace, uh, when it's convenient to you and how you would like. So check out our courses today, reconditioninghq.com and change the way you practice in a really powerful way. Hey, if you're liking the podcast, head over to lymlab.com. You can get all the latest episodes there. Check out what we've been doing and what we've been up to. If you want to get a Leave Your Mark cap, that's the place to go. Uh, they are beautiful, and you can get one in black or you can get one in gray, and there will be more coming in the future. You can also check out what we're doing with our uh LYM Life Lab, there are two free DLs there that you can take home and check out to maybe help you recenter yourself and focus on how you want to manage change. And you can also become uh, a member of our mailing list and receive weekly uh, reminders of the next podcast that's out. So do us a favor, check it out. Take some time to get on to your latest streaming service and rate and share the podcast. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast.
1: I mean, I think it starts with the relationship between the the therapist and the SEC um, personnel. And, you know, it starts with trust. Um, You trust that they're an expert in their field. You trust that they have the athlete's best interests in mind. Um, You trust that they're going to come to you with uh, questions and, and with uh, insight um, before going to someone else that that there's just a, a good working dynamic. I think when you have two people that are on the same, it's no different than a marriage or a business relationship without trust. It's, it's really getting off on the wrong foot. So, you know, I, I can, you know, go back to my time with Alpine Canada, and I know you've worked with them uh, extensively is Kent Kabelka was the guy I worked with and he's now with the Calgary flames. It, it just, there was a, a high degree of trust and people that the, the smartest people I've been around in my career are the people that are, I guess, the, the least sure of themselves in a, in a, in a intelligent way. So they're not coming to every, uh, solution with a problem. They're, they're very curious. Well, what do you think of this? And there's, they create dialogue around things and they're inviting, um, healthy debate so that we can, uh, come to a, a, um, a better solution for each of our, our little problems that arise along the path. And I just think that relationship sets the table for everything. Um, and it, and I think the, More experience you have, and this is probably just an age thing, the the more comfortable you are showing vulnerability, um, admitting you don't know what to do next, um, and being open to other ideas. Uh, I know uh, I'm a stubborn person, and when I was young, I, I, like most people, had a lot of answers thought I knew best. And as you grow and learn and, and age a little bit, you, you realize that you don't have all the answers and that you, you have some insight and that it really is going to take, uh, expertise from a lot of people to, to really come to the correct answer or the most correct answer. Um, when those, when those situations arise. So, you know, just to come back to your questions, I believe it's the relationship that makes it work best. It's trust, it's vulnerability, and it's it's just um, an appreciation for each other's skill sets.
2: Mm, nice. Well, the interesting thing, because um, I don't know if you can necessarily answer this question with much of experience, really, but a lot of the people that are on our call here, or that are in our community, are working in the private sector, um, or even just working in the government, you know, but not in professional sports. So they're often their own being, right? And so they don't necessarily get the chance, like, you know, i if you if you're your own personal trainer with your gym, you have your clients. You don't get the chance to sit there and chat with each person's physio or whatever that they're going to see, your athletic therapist or whatever. And so, the opportunity to try and develop um, a, a good communication and a strategy and a relationship is really challenging. So, um, I don't know if you have some experience on what you could share with how people could help broker that a little bit when somebody is working in therapy and also trying to do that training.
1: Yeah. And, and you're yeah. right, Jamie, I don't have a ton of experience. My well, virtually my entire career has been in team sport. Um, I'm trying to imagine if I tomorrow began in the private sector and I was a personal trainer. Or I was at a, at a private facility where we didn't have therapists in the working environment. And I had an athlete come to me that had, some injury and was seeing someone for that injury, the first thing I do is I get on the phone with them or I go and visit them if they're, if they're local. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the approach isn't different or the philosophy around the approach isn't different. Um, obviously some of the, the tangible or intangible elements of the project are slightly different because you're not on the same quote unquote team or in the same space. But I think, again creating a relationship with whoever the therapist is or whoever the strength coach is or personal trainers is getting in and having some dialogue and, and again putting the client or the athlete at the center of the of the project. Mm-hmm. Um so again if 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 I do the opposite, if a if a client or athlete comes to me and they, they have some ailment chronic or acute and I don't take the time to um do my back, my background work or, or, or reach out to the therapist. I think I'm making it about me at that point. Mm. Now it's my vision of what should happen. It's my mission to fix the athlete. It's maybe I'm not even acknowledging the injury. Maybe I'm sloughing it off and saying it doesn't really, don't worry. We can work through this. You know, that, that therapist is just trying to bubble wrap you and and let's get to work. And, and I think, Um, that is definitely an approach that is likely going to backfire or likely going to blow up in your face. And if not at that time, uh, at some point it is. Uh, So I I think, like I said, the philosophy shouldn't change. It's just how you go about creating those lines of communication and and building um, some level of of relationship with the the therapy staff.
2: Yeah, well, I love what you said there because, um, you know, I think – I've done that in my experience is really just said, look, can, can you give your, you know, trainer my email? And I would love to like send them an email and just find out what, what type of things you're doing. And, you know, it's, I've had, I don't think I've ever had a negative response to that really. Um, and, you know, if anything, to your point, my client feels so much better taken care of. It's like, oh my gosh, they're talking behind my back. I I understand busy um, professionals sometimes that can be a challenging thing because that's an in addition to the time that they spend with clients but to your point you can not do that and that's going to blow up in your face later or you can spend the extra time and do that and now you have this network of community of people who trust you and now refer to you and whatever so i just wanted to put that out there because i think that's really important
0: mm-hmm. yeah to go to the uh sort of the technical space now a little bit um you know and I'd love to hear your perspective, both from what you did when you were with Alpine Canada, what you're doing now in hockey is you, you take the flip side of this, which is the going from the performance space into the actual technical tactical side of things where you've got the coach um, coaching and leading the the technical reintegration of the sport. Um, so I know in Alpine Canada and having talked to uh, our other good friend, Matt Jordan, around, you know, your guys work around creating an, a return to snow protocol or a return to ice protocol, as you might have now. How have you brokered that process and actually recognized, like, what are going to be the, the the benchmarks for, you know, the next stage of demand on the snow or on the ice? What are going to be the incremental uh, loading parameters, how you're going to define intensity or volume or what have you? So everybody's on the same page and you recognize what is really truly being demanded of the athlete as they go on to snow or they go on to the ice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously I'm not a pioneer in this and I'm just someone who's, you know, trying to build on the things that have been, been done. And I think going back to Alpine Canada, um, those of you familiar with, with Alpine skiing, obviously ACL injuries are the, the, the major catastrophic injury that those athletes experience, um, amongst a lot of other ones, but it became, um, really clear between the, the surgeons, the therapists, uh, the strength and conditioning people, the performance directors, that there was a, there was a gap in how we returned athletes to, to racing and we needed something, um, rooted in science that would, uh, make the return successful, uh, and as efficient as possible. It wasn't always as fast as possible. It was as uh, efficient and, successful as possible and the brokering was done by excellent performance leads that sat the right people down in the room and said hey here's the problem and we've got some smart people in this room how can we how can we create a document that's going to help guide us and um you know there was some some amazing people back this is pre-2010 olympics that put some excellent thought into how to bring an athlete back to skiing and then eventually back to racing, um, after something like an ACL injury. And, um, that was sort of the, the framework, uh, that I, I, I first learned from, um, again, I was fresh out of grad school and, and tons of knowledge, but not a lot of experience. So that, that was certainly a, uh, an indelible, um, experience for me. Um, and I think when I brought my experience, to the LA Kings, uh, one thing, and again, I'm a hockey guy. So I go back to hockey and I go back to my experience as an athlete. So you get an injury and you, you know, you go through whatever rudimentary rehab you might have access to. You remember, I wasn't a, a high level pro. So it was, it was mm-hmm. ice bags and tensor bandages and fun things like that. Um, and, Know, you were back playing well before you were ever ready there was really no intermediate steps it was can you tolerate the pain okay let's go and so you get back to, to the hockey world I'm in LA now and and of course it's it's evolved quite a bit since my playing days but it was not near the level of my experience with Alpine Canada and and um, for some reason had a, a bit of a a mental block. I didn't, I didn't make the link right away. And because I was a hockey brain and I, and I kind of shelved the the skiing experience and we had an athlete go through a, a long-term rehab, uh, and, and things, uh, backfired at one point or, or fought back and that the tendon didn't do what we wanted it to do. And, and we thought, well, what if I said, what if we try this, this other method, you know, and I've got this experience that, that we've used I kind of borrowed some of the concepts and we applied it um, using, of course, we have uh, endless resources in pro sport and we can track everything athletes do. And I, I understand that's not commonplace, um, but we were able to build a really nice program that seemed to make sense. Um, and, and it was justifiable to the medical staff. Like here's, here's how we're going to do things. And then we really slow played the, the return after this point. I ended up having some success with it and it, and it sort started, of started us on a path where uh, we could have very productive conversations uh, between um, the, the physicians, between the PTs, between the ATs and said, well, here's here's the, the logical progressions. Here are the things we can manage and here's how, how we're going to manage them. Here's why we should manage them. And then here's a, a, a very reasonable... Uh, progression from point A to, C, to B to C to D. And it it just sort of becomes obvious. It, it's, it's one of those things that as old school as you might be, or as resistant to change you might be, I think ultimately you look at something that makes a lot of sense and you can't ignore it forever. <laughs> um, and that sort of you know, set us on the pathway and, and I'll, I'll step back the analogy, like I've, I've said before, and we've had a lot of success with this is if you, if you were to buy a new car and you had the option to, um, let's say you could save $500 on the purchase price and you wouldn't get a fuel gauge. Okay. So you have no idea how much gas is in the car. Great, you can save five hundred dollars, and you've probably got a decent feel for how far you can drive. And okay, it's probably getting low, and I should put some gas. And then you probably get away with it. But every now and then, you're going to run out of gas, and it might you might run out of gas in a bad place, right? And so, if we say, well, we'll put the gas gauge, and you don't have to look at it, you can still go by feel, right? Um, but you're going to be driving around town, and every now and then, you peek at it, you like, oh, it's a little lower than I thought it was, or, oh, wow, it's really low. I didn't think it was that low. And all of a sudden the gas gauge becomes really important information to the point where, well, I don't want to ignore this. I I want this gas gauge in my next car. It's kind of like that where Mm. the information is just, it it makes too much sense and why not use it? Mm. And I think those are the sort of conversations and meetings and, and, um, you know, Things that we've been through that that sort of like you said brokered this this transition to let let's let's work together let's have this structure around it and and it really brings together the staff and um, you know it just again a- as the therapy staff learns about the things that performance people want to provide it's not about um, holding on to your element like this is decentralized this is our information about our athlete. So there's not one person checking the numbers and then, you know, over on the side creating graphs and, and then, you know, there's no secret here. It's not it's not a black box. It's very transparent. And uh, all of our staff are very educated on the types of information that we collect and what it means. And and, you know, now we can have we can have pretty productive conversations around, let's say, workload, like the, tomorrow we're going to, uh, we're going to complete a hundred units of work. And the therapist might say, Ooh, that seems a lot or, Oh, that's it. Or, Oh, perfect. You know, they have an opinion on it. It's not, we're not debating 2% here. We're debating, you know, and, and, like big rock stuff. So like I said, it becomes very obvious, very relevant, very useful. And, and you can't ignore it when it's just, you know, simple stuff that we can all work together on.
0: mm mm-hmm. I'm curious, and maybe you don't have the answer to it, but it's more just out of a curiosity of your development and and the process you've gone through with de- analyzing the data that you've pulled, etc. You know, there's this, in my mind, there's this, if I look at hockey, there's a sensitivity between what what is intense in certain, call it packages. So, you know, there's an intensity differential in terms of speed or velocity. So, obviously, if I'm at peak velocity, that's probably higher intensity than 50% velocity. But then in hockey, you also have changes of direction, stopping, starting. How have you sort of pinned the tail on the donkey, in essence, of what is – What is higher intensity and how you're packaging these various elements in a a loading paradigm as you're bringing somebody back on the ice? I mean, do you get into that that depth of space or, you know, how do you kind of counsel the coach and say, you know what, right now he should not be turning or he should be turning and maybe he should just be turning at 50 percent? I'm just self-discovering here through this question. So I'm just interested in what you've done around that.
1: No i mean it's a, it's an awesome question and it certainly um, it's, ex, it's exactly what we do um, you know with with you don't really need the technology to understand the 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 difference between what's intense what's not what's high volume what's low volume you, anyone who's been around um, doesn't matter if it's hockey or any other field sport team sport individual sport you can look at something and say wow that's extremely intense or that's moderate or low so we did build the framework around managing forces which is essentially managing intensity so we're going to work with the the parameters of volume and intensity and you know nine times out of ten we're rehabbing a uh, well any return to ice uh, program for us is going to be highly structured on the lower body injury right so it's it tends to be a a groin injury, a knee injury, or uh, a fracture. Um, And those are all handled slightly differently, but you know, under the same same sort of philosophy. Early, we're obviously very low volume, low intensity, and then we'll start to progress volumes and intensities um, up until the point where an athlete can handle very specific volumes and very specific intensities that are matched to what I call sort of benchmark events Um, so in hockey, we have a morning skate. So that's, that's a common activity that all athletes go through and we know what that sort of looks like. We have practices. Okay. A practice commonly looks like this. Uh, we have a game. Well, a game is a lot obviously, but we could look at subsections of the game. What does one period look like? What does two periods look like? What does a full game look like? So we have these sort of benchmark events. The idea is that we, use these to sort of link step to step to get us closer to the next benchmark event. Mm -hmm. Um, Our objective is to return an athlete to a practice having already done a practice or even experience one or two uh, periods of a game in a simulation um, without any sort of uh, setback. Uh, So that's how we work that. Now the volume and intensity piece is huge, right? So, Volume is pretty straightforward. You know, it could be time. It just could be total workload. That's something that our, our technology will track. But time's a, a simple one, and that's the old school one, right? Like an athlete's cleared for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Intensity is a little bit different. Um, the lowest intensity skating we can do is just a very light lap of the rink, right? Like we're very constrained. It's, it's 100 by 200. Um, there's certain arcs involved okay so there's the most low intense skating we can do if we want to create a little more intensity we shorten the arc of our circle now we're doing maybe a, a defensive zone or a half ice and maybe we get down onto the circles there's five circles on a rink let's let's go around the five circles okay the the arcs are getting um, smaller our our angular forces are going up there's a little bit more intensity right down to, well, a pivot or a stop or a start. Those would be the the highest intense change of directions. So we're we're gonna layer those in. We're gonna build on those. Um, Obviously a pivot has a certain type of intensity to it. Um, Shooting adds in intense uh, work. Um, Sprinting, so we'll do progressive accelerations. So we might use a flying acceleration at first. So an example, we skate five out of 10. I want you to accelerate to a seven out of ten. So we're in motion. Obviously, forces are down because we've already got into uh, into some uh, moving velocity, and then we'll slowly work them backwards to us to a, an acceleration effort from a zero velocity. We want to, and then we might do progressive progressive accelerations. So across the entire length of the ice, we're going five, six, seven, eight out of ten. Obviously, we can build on that. Um, We might use high-velocity skating. Okay, so athletes skate—you know, 11 meters per second would be extremely fast. Okay, we want you to do a seven, uh, a 70% effort. We want you to do an 80% effort. What we do is we do that on the full uh, size of the rink. Obviously, with our tracking technology, we can say very specifically how intense that sprint effort was, how much distance we covered there. So we're going to be building up some, some high-velocity skating elements there. And we know that's important for groin health, or we maybe need the knee to tolerate high-velocity skating and with a stop and with a change of direction. So again, with the, the benefit of this, of this incredible technology, we can literally track the, the high-intensity stops, the high-intensity starts, the, the high-velocity skating we can then work on things like pressure. So um, obviously it's not just skating and we're not, we're not speed skaters. So an athlete's going to have to change direction multiple times. They may have to do it with a defender on their, on their hip. They may need to take pressure. They may need to take contact. So we may layer that in at the late stages where can an athlete take contact? Um, can they work themselves out of resistance? Do they have confidence pushing out of a, out of a corner when someone's kind of pulling on them in the opposite direction. Mm. So all these little pieces get built into the point where we feel like we've replicated the demands of, of a practice. They're going to have to be around a lot of people. In fact, the practice is a very, uh, uh scary thing for some guys, especially when, when they go out with, uh, like, like an MCL to me is a funny injury because it's, you know, it's, it's not an ACL and it's kind of one of those things you can brace and play with, but the, and I've never had any, uh, an MCL injury, but obviously the feedback we get from a lot of athletes, it doesn't feel stable. It's, it's loose. It's wobbly. It's, I don't feel, I don't feel pop in my leg. And all of a sudden there's not like in a game, you have 10 people on the ice in a practice. You have 25 people on the ice and you've got five coaches and there's people running into things that they're not supposed to run into and there's chaos. So a lot of times the practice is one of the more intimidating events to get back into. Um, so these are these uh, volume and intensity considerations that we program out and you've, you've nailed it, Scotty. It's, it's huge. And, and so your last part of your question was how do we, explain that to the coaches. And, and what we've sort of arrived on is we don't actually hand them off to a coach until they're ready to handle a coach. <laughs> the coach, um, and this is no disrespect to the coach, you can't trust the coach because the coach wants to play hockey. They want to coach hockey. So let's remove them from the equation until they can actually handle the coach. And the coaches um, are fine with that they're busy trying to win hockey games and prepare for the next opponent to do all these things. So they don't really want to do the rehab. So they're not really a part of it. Um, and now obviously bigger staffs will layer in a skills coach sort of in that very end stage, they might get four or five sessions before they get passed off and now they're in a practice and we hand them off in a position to handle whatever a coach throws at them.
0: Mm uh don dudley asked a question i'm going to circle back to it don in a few mi- minutes because it's a little bit more about the skills of performance professionals and i want to kind of complete this conversation here um i'm really curious what you, what has been your growth proposition and sort of um how you handle it now maybe and, and to handle it differently but um The nature of as somebody's starting to go on ice, now you're starting to go, okay, well, I'm recognizing what the loads are, the intensities, et cetera. You also have this off-ice proposition. And the marriage between those two things and recognizing, okay, before we were all off ice and I'm cranking out this volume and intensity and this kind of workload. Now I'm putting them on the ice. That's another workload I'm attaching to this process. So how are you backfilling or revising what your expectations are off the ice to complement what you're doing on the ice? You don't just keep piling more shit on, so to speak. So how, how do you go through that process of recognizing what do I, what do I have to keep working on off ice? But, but how do I support? You know, a healthy recuperation as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a really great question. So um there's probably a couple different phases here that involve very tangible transitions. So the first one would be first day back on ice. And what we do in the initial one to three sessions is is remove almost everything from the off ice. So it's gonna be for about three or four days. We we almost eliminate all sort of stress around the injury site so that we can really see how it's reacting to the skating. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to put them on ice day one, then go and do some split squats and then go, Oh, the knee, the knee really reacted. Well, we don't know what it was from. Right. So we'll remove almost all other stressors in that initial one to three sessions, just to make sure we can really monitor the reaction to skating. Um, then we'll start to resume the off ice work that compliments because now we're not really doing a ton in general. Those that initial week, it's still pretty low level. Um, of course, there's a, a pretty significant cardiovascular response because if they've been out for any extended period of time, um, they're not in great skating shape, which you know, simply they're not replicating on a stationary bike or a, an arc or whatever they might be doing at PT. So Initially, we remove, then we start to layer back in, let's say, some of the S&C components. A lot of it early on still remains in the hands of the PT. So if we're, if we're talking knees or groins, we'll probably allow them to guide the, the lower body strength component. The S&C guys or, or girls will, will complement with some upper body. Um, and another element of this, Scott, is we're trying to slowly reintegrate them with the team. So there's team activity happening they've been removed from it for one, two, four, six, eight weeks, whatever it is, slowly putting them back into it. Okay. You can do this part of the team program, but then you're going to do this part with the PT. And so there's this other reintegration, which is huge, right? They're going to be back with the team soon. We, we can kind of kickstart that in in the weight room. Um, Now we recognize that a lot of fitness has been lost um, in, in a lot of cases. So, The conditioning off-ice remains a big part of it. We start really pushing more intensity until the point where the on-ice program, we've achieved enough functionality that we can make the on-ice session hard enough and specific enough that we don't really need to do much off-ice. So as soon as we can get the work on-ice, we're going to take out that uh, that part off the ice. I don't, I don't believe in riding a stationary bike for conditioning in season. We want to skate to get in shape. So that might happen somewhere on session five, six, or seven, as we're kind of getting into the week, week and a half range. Um, and we can track this, uh, fairly closely with, you know, we have heart rate monitors and our external load through catapult player tracking technology, but Um, That's another big step is this sort of transition from off ice conditioning to now relying on the on ice component for our conditioning work. Um, And then as we get very end stage, now we're really intense on the ice. We have high intensity, high volume. The off ice program replicates or looks much like what the team is doing. So we're essentially trying to get this all back into congruence to make it all fit back together. So their day is very much like a normal, healthy player. So that when they do jump in, there's really no big difference. It's it's relatively seamless across these, these steps.
0: Very cool.
2: I think it's nice to hear that, you know. I think for a lot of the clinicians that are in the room, because I think that's what clinicians are trying to do in their rehab process in the early stages. But again, the understanding sometimes, especially in the clinical realm when you're not necessarily around a bunch of SNC guys, is that maybe there isn't that much thought towards that in the end. So it's really neat to, I'm, I'm glad you went through that because that's what we would expect, obviously, but knowing that that's where the, um, the detail that you go into it's, it's fantastic. And so, you know, that really that it becomes a really nice merger. Like you said, it's always in the process and the communication. So love that.
1: Well, um, even that, that strength element, um, listen, every strength guy or girl is going to say, well, they're the expert in strength training. So, you know, have fun in the PT weightlifting room, but I'm not going to get my hands on you. You're going to get really strong. Right. Um, I think as long, again, like we have a, a pretty good working relationship here. We've got a, an excellent, uh, multidisciplinary staff. And I think we all, again, appreciate and respect our, our areas of expertise, but again, the world's become much more objective. And mm. when a PT says a, 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 a leg is back to its normal strength without any sort of measurement, it, it doesn't really fly anymore. Right. We have a million ways to to quantify leg strength right back to some of our performance-based strength testing that would have been done in training camps. So again, it's removed the, opinion out of the conversation and it's made things a little bit more or a lot more objective Mm -hmm. and then we can say okay now we've got left and right asymmetries reduced down to x which we're comfortable with it's back to this percentage of baseline like there's so much measurement that happens now and it's not perfect but it certainly has gotten us closer to something that we have a lot more confidence in before we turn them loose again so it's it just comes back to good relationships, good conversations, appreciating the information that's involved and and then who it's about.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: Get to a couple of the questions that are in the list here. Uh, Don Dudley asked, is there anything that you would recommend in regard to skill set and the effort to become a more more relevant in the performance staff space in the NHL? What what do you think people who want to work in or, or be relevant in that space should be? or Bar- oh
2: maybe even from Don's side, being a clinician in the NHL, how do you, you know, work with the performance staff? Yeah. um,
1: That's a tricky question. I'm not even sure I I completely understand it. Uh, Being relevant in this space, I think.
2: Don, you can open up your mic if you want to, like. Yeah. maybe. Maybe give a little bit more background to what you'd like to see. Are you able to? I don't know. If he's yeah, able. can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, great. I'm up
0: in the mountains today, so sorry about that. Nice. But that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've worked in professional sports for a long time, and I've uh, this will be my 20th season in professional hockey, and uh, I've been on the Sabers' performance staff
1: since 2017. But kind of. Always trying to be more relevant. You know, I'm coming in as a chiropractor and a, a, a manual therapist of sorts. And, um, you know, in Buffalo, anyway, everything is a one year deal. And this is our team and this is how we're moving forward. And I just really love that space, but I want to have longevity there too. So I, I didn't know if you had any recommendations about further integrating with different skill sets that would make uh, one of your manual therapy people be more relevant overall yeah well uh, Don I'd love to hear your thoughts about Buffalo at some other time but um, (laughs) uh, I know Stefania Rizzo is a friend of mine who was there at one point I don't know if you crossed paths but um, I I certainly uh, empathize with the one year contract and the the very um, short-term nature of our positions. Um, I guess it's kind of, there's two sides to this coin. One is, um, I think staffs are growing. So in LA, our staffs are growing. Like we didn't, I know Buffalo at one point had a very large staff with a lot of different people involved. And then I know it's contracted a little bit. Whereas say in LA, it's sort of been incremental growth. And every year there seems to be another, another piece in place. Um, of course you've been around in, in pro hockey a lot or pro sport a lot longer than I have. Um, and you, and, and even Scotty and Jamie will, will, uh, acknowledge this. There was a time where you kind of just had two people, right? Actually at one point there was just the athletic trainer, then strength coaches sort of showed up and we've got two people wearing 10 hats. And now what we have are 10 people wearing 10 hats, um, just to, as an analogy. So we've got a lot of very, uh, you know, specialized people in these staffs. And um, I hate the term stay in your lane, but lanes are important. This is another conversation, but lanes are important. They do provide guidance. Um, And I think the the spirit of Don's question, if I'm correct, is being more appreciative of the other, professionals that you're working alongside and maybe how you can complement them and not replace them or not, uh, do their job for them. Um, and I think, uh, hopefully I'm going to answer this question or give some reasonable answer, but I think just being informed of what the, uh, underpinnings of the, the other professions are, um, you know, so an SNC person probably has a pretty strong nutrition background like that would be a pretty common uh secondary sort of area of of interest or expertise but now we have a nutritionist and 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 our nutritionist is world class and we don't try to do her job we we complement her work alongside her and i think there's these these overlapping areas where um where you should appreciate and understand what everyone else does understand where your area lies and being a part of a, of a, of a high-functioning team um, probably creates value add. I think that creates the likelihood of longevity. Um, of course, longevity is really just related to the GM of the, the year, GM of the month. <laughs> I know in Buffalo, lots of turnover. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, I don't know if that answers the question, Don, but I think it's just... Being a domain expert with uh, an appreciation and understanding of the people around you, and making sure that you know when and where your spot is to to um, add your two cents and where to back off, and and how to function as a as a as a team, and and how to function as a unit to uh, achieve those tasks. Hopefully, that kind of gets at it.
0: Well, I was going to say, too, like, uh, Don, I think your your commitment getting involved in reconditioning is one of those things that I think really plays into that in the sense that you're enlightening yourself to um, the what the performance demands side of the equation is. And I think it's important to understand, like, you know, Matt and I did a a great project together uh, a couple of years ago now um, and. I consider myself to be a quality strength and conditioning coach, but I think I don't understand what I would call uh, performance loading parameters to the degree that my good friend Matt does across the table. And when we got into that project, I was handling some of the front end sort of rehabilitative reconditioning stuff. But when we start handing off... It's my recognition that Matt has a set of skills and acumen that I don't have that's going to inform our process. And we have a conversation. But me enlightening myself to what those are gives me the ability to ask the question. I don't know the answers, but I know how to ask the question. So if I look at it as an example, when I went down to L.A. with the, that project, you know, Matt and I immediately sat down and said, you said, you know, what how are you going to determine how he's reloading on the ice? What is going to be, you know, an intense session? What's not going to be? How are the, you know, so, you, so and Matt's enlightening to to me to his process and the data that he's pulling and he's, and, and, and so you in, in, in learning these things, I don't have to be, I don't feel I have to be an expert in that, but I have to recognize it's there. And I have to recognize that it's a part of Matt's process and I and I need to ask good questions about it and be curious. And that's how we have a collaborative process. So that that's would be my answer to the question. I don't think there's a perfect answer, but it's just enlightening yourself, recognizing where your holes are and recognizing there's lots to know and you, you want to know what the other person brings to the table and and learn about it, right? Yeah. Awesome. Last question, and the thing is I'm wondering how much, if any, you're using flywheel devices for specific capacity development in your um,
1: process now.
2: This is Steve's question.
1: Yeah. Um, we we do use flywheels quite a bit. Um, in terms of capacity building, I think they have a place uh, Specific, we use them very specifically in the off season or in, in our uh, intensification block and specifically on, on days where we want some eccentric overload uh, as it pertains to um, reconditioning or return to play it generally doesn't factor in. I think the, the way these devices are built, at least the ones we use, I think are a little bit too aggressive. Um, athletes still aren't super comfortable and having to react to this change of direction with the inertial loads is is pretty intense on them. Um again there's there's ways to load that and and get benefit from it, I'm sure. It's just we have other tools we prefer. Um you know again I'm a, a, a fan of and a proponent of the the 1080 equipment we use. Um, the robotic resistance from 1080, and we can use that very precisely. Uh, we can precisely load in either concentric or eccentric directions. Uh, we can load iso isokinetically um, um, and allow athletes to produce very uh, autonomous loading. So uh, flywheels are a piece of it. I guess I just wouldn't say they're a huge piece, and we would prefer in general in those uh reconditioning or RTP scenarios, something that where the athlete's a little bit more in control. Um, and I find the flywheel just has a little bit uh, too much intensity to it um, for that specific example.
0: Cool. Uh, is there any yeah, other thanks. questions? Yeah. Sorry, and I just or... opened up my mic. Just uh, wanted to follow up with that. Um, yeah, my, sorry, my question is not really relative
1: to um, re- rehabbing. It's more just how much you're using it in general with, you know, with your programming. Yeah. Um, Definitely more in the off season programming than of course, like I I alluded to previously, we will use uh, three primary moves with it. So it's it's a very expensive piece of equipment for three moves, but budgets not always our, our issue. So we like we like a, just a bilateral squat.
2: Your daddy, it's all good. <laughs> oh, um,
1: sure. We use the bilateral squat. We use an RDL. We use a row. We have a single arm row. We use on the on the pulley component. And, um, on our pulley, we use a lateral squat. So I can't remember the name of it. I'm sure they're popular in all the clinics. Now that big body straps, you kind of wrap yourself up in it and we'll use a lateral sort of push, uh, where the body gets to torque a little bit over top of the hip and they can get some short range extension at, at high velocity. So we get a, a higher frequency extension. Those are probably the four big ones we use. Um, of course on, on when the coaches lift, it's a lot of arm curls, but um, that's that's beside the point. Um, but they're very popular. Now that lateral pulse I, I alluded to, it's uh, so we have the K pulley. That one we use every game day. Um, so we'll actually prime guys in the morning uh, with a I think it's a a 10 gram wheel. It's not super heavy, but we get high frequency high force pushes, um, very end range, so we're we're not going super deep on it. And we'll pair that with a high velocity plyometric guys love that. So it's a very, very popular um, exercise to throw at them in a, in in the morning prior to a game, they feel great with it. and, And that's a popular one for us.
0: Beautiful. Well, um, we have reached our hour with you, sir, and I uh, hear the little man is uh, calling your name, so we'll like <laughs> to uh, get back to being a dad. I truly appreciate your time, Matt. It's always great to catch up with you and chat with you and get your insights. Uh, you're doing great things uh, in your world, and thanks for taking the time today.
1: Great. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Scotty. Everyone have a great weekend, and uh, hopefully see you all soon.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at BuiltByScott and Instagram at KingO'Pay, and become a member of this community at Scott G Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day! Music by Cedric de Saint Rome.